The Old Testament reading today is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. The New Testament reading is 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. That is the sermon text for today. Hear now the word of the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 11. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his co-worker. And he says, Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord add his blessing to the preaching of it today. In the previous passage, we learned that churches, and particularly pastors, have the responsibility to proclaim true doctrine and also to insist that no different doctrine be taught within Christ's church. The church was born of the truth and is continuously nurtured by the truth. True doctrine will produce unity and good order within the church, but false doctrine will lead only to speculation and strife. And so we must never forget what the church is. She is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Those who teach a different doctrine, doctrine that differs from the teaching of Paul, the other apostles of Christ himself and the prophets before him, are to be strictly warned to cease. So the church cannot tolerate false doctrine in her midst. False doctrine is like spiritual poison. In time it will lead to spiritual sickness and even spiritual death within the church of God. In the passage that is before us today, we gain more insight into the kind of false teaching that was present within the church of Ephesus when Timothy began to minister there. There is obviously a problem in Ephesus. Paul left him there for a reason, and he charged him to do this 
for a reason. There was obviously a problem there. There were false teachers in the church. And here we learn a little bit more about the kind of false teaching that was present within this church. And as we consider this passage carefully, we will recognize that the false teaching in Ephesus was in some ways similar to the false teaching that threatened other congregations in the days of the early church. And not only that, we will also recognize that the kind of false teaching that threatened Ephesus still plagues the church even to this present day. Now before we get into the content of this message, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that the same form of false teaching is present in the church today. In fact, Paul does not even tell us enough about this false teaching to enable us to know exactly what it was. His objective to writing to Timothy was, among other things, to see this false teaching eradicated from the church in Ephesus. And so it is not surprising that he does not mention all of the details, the specifics of this false teaching. Timothy knew the specifics. They were clear to him. But what Paul does, he simply identifies the root problems. And so although we do not know the details of the false teaching, we do know the essence of it. And as I have said, the essence of this false teaching still plagues the church even to this present day. The details are almost certainly different, but the essential errors remain the same. And two essential errors can be identified in Paul's letter to Timothy. The first is very general, the second more specific. One, these false teachers, whoever they were, they rooted their teaching in a misuse of the Holy Scriptures. And two... These false teachers, whoever they were, they rooted their teaching in a misinterpretation of the law of Moses. Uh, That is the more particular point that will be made in this sermon today. So first of all, let us consider the very generic observation that false teachers misuse the scriptures. And when I say that they misuse the scriptures, I am acknowledging that they do use the scriptures. In fact, sometimes false teachers use the scriptures a lot, but I hope that you would agree with me that quoting scripture, even if you quote it extensively, does not make your teaching biblical. Do you agree with that statement, brothers and sisters? I pray that you do. Quoting scripture, even if you quote a lot of it, does not make your teaching biblical. And perhaps you have heard the expression, every heretic has his proof text. Have you ever heard that expression, or is it just an expression that pastors have heard? I don't know. Maybe it's not that common. But every every heretic has his proof text. What does that mean? Every heretic is able to recite biblical passages in support of their claims. It is certainly true. False teachers will slide into the church, and they will slide into the church with a Bible in their hands. And that Bible will probably be very well worn. False teachers rarely, if ever, reject the Scriptures outright. Instead, they misuse the Scriptures. What would happen to false teachers if they came into the church and rejected the Scriptures outright? Christians certainly would have enough discernment to say, but we believe the Scriptures. What you are saying is false. Instead, they stride into the church with the Bible in their hands. They quote it extensively. They misuse the scriptures in order to promote their false doctrines. Paul's little statement here in verse 8 is what brought this general observation to mind. Now we know that the law is good, he says, if one uses it lawfully. In just a moment, we will come to the more specific observation that these false teachers misused the law of Moses in particular. But for now, let me say a word about the misuse of scripture 
in general. When Paul says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, he, lawfully, he means that the law is good provided that it is used as it was intended to be used or according to its design. And the same may be said concerning the use of the scriptures in general. The scriptures must be interpreted and used according to their intent. Indeed, this is what Paul urged Timothy to do as a minister of the word in his second letter to him. In 2 Timothy 2.15, we read, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Not only as a pastor to handle the word of truth, he is to handle it rightly, or he is to handle it correctly. And so, how does a pastor know if he is handling the word of truth correctly? Have you ever wondered that? How does a pastor know if he is handling the word of truth rightly or correctly? Or, we could ask the same question in another way. How does a congregation know if their pastor is handling the word of truth rightly or correctly? Who's to say? Two things come to mind. One, the teaching of pastors must accord with sound doctrine. This is precisely what Paul required of Titus in Titus 2.1, Titus being another co-worker of Paul's. To Titus, Paul said, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So the teaching of Titus and every other minister of the word is to accord or fit with doctrine that is sound or correct. The undeniable implication of this command that Paul gave to Titus is that there is a doctrinal standard to which ministers of the word are to conform. There is a doctrinal standard to which ministers of the word are to conform. Pastors are not free to invent their doctrine. Perhaps you have noticed that being novel and creative is celebrated in many fields. Being creative is a good thing. It is something to be celebrated in so many professions. But pastors are called to receive the word of God and they are called to proclaim it. They are to promote and defend the truth that has been entrusted to them. Theirs, in part, is a ministry of preservation. They are ministers or servants of the word. And they are not masters who stand over the word as lords over it. And so pastors should not seek to be novel or created, and neither should congregations celebrate that within their ministers, at least as it pertains to their ministry of the Word of God. But they should seek to see the Word preserved, promoted, proclaimed. We should live in submission to the Word. It is not ours to twist and to conform to our every, to our every whim and desire, but instead it is to be proclaimed as it has been entrusted to us. We are to teach doctrine that accords with sound doctrine. Uh, this is such an important truth to, to, to recognize. Where is this word of truth or sound doctrine found? Where is it found? Well, we are to see that the apostles received it from Christ verbally. The next generation of leaders within the church received it from the apostles, both verbally and in written form. And in due time, this word of truth, this sound doctrine, was committed wholly unto writing so that today we have the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as our standard, as our rule, as our canon. This is the very thing that our confession of faith says in 
chapter 1, paragraph 1. It's the very first thing that our confession of faith says. Listen, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the, whole, the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people now being ceased. So what is the doctrinal standard? To which ministers of the gospel are to conform? Where is it found? It is the doctrine of Christ. It is the doctrine of the apostles. It is the doctrine of the prophets, as contained for us now in the pages of Holy Scripture. That is where sound doctrine is found. And ministers of the Word of God are to devote themselves to proclaiming that doctrine. They are to conform to it. They are to uphold it and defend it. Given that the scriptures are our authority for truth, it should not surprise us that they are constantly under attack. Perhaps you have noticed this. The scriptures, the word of God, is constantly under attack. Those who are opposed to the truth will attack the scriptures in many different ways. Some will question its absolute authority. Others will question the doctrine of inspiration, saying, well, this is merely the word of man. Have you ever heard that claim before? This, this book that you have, it is merely the product of man, and it is not the word of God. Some will question its infallibility, claiming that it contains errors. And others will question its purity, claiming that it has been corrupted in the process of transmission. All of these assaults upon Scripture are probably familiar to you. You've heard them before. False teachers will attack the scriptures in these ways and others in order to make room for their, no own, their own novel teaching. As I have said before, they will not dismiss the scriptures entirely in such a direct way, but they will, they will chip away at our doctrine of scripture in one way or another so as to undermine our trust in the word of God so as to make room for their own novel teachings. But I have noticed that many in our day will attack the scriptures by claiming that they are unclear. I think this is more common than we even realize. Some will attack the scriptures in our day by claiming that they are unclear. These will say, well, yes, the scriptures are our authority for truth. They are inspired and inerrant and have been faithfully preserved. All of that is true, but they are unclear. We cannot be dogmatic, therefore, in our doctrine. We must be open to a diversity of opinions, and on and on they go. Now, I will grant that the scriptures are not clear regarding every question that we might have. That is certainly true. But the scriptures are clear regarding all things essential to the faith. And this is the doctrine of perspicuity. I like to say that word, in fact, perspicuity. It feels nice rolling off the tongue, but it is such a very important word, and it's such a very important doctrine the doctrine of perspicuity is the doctrine of, of the clarity of Scripture. 
And this doctrine is beautifully stated in chapter 1, paragraph 7 of our confession. I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time, I'm going to quote from our confession extensively today because I think there are helpful truths summarized here. Here is the doctrine of perspicuity. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, which means here literate, but the unlearned, that is the illiterate, in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. This is the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. The Scriptures are sufficiently clear. And consider what we would be saying about God if we deny this doctrine. What would we be saying about Him? We would be saying that God inspired the Word so that it might be our authority for matters of faith and practice. But, after all, when all is said and done, God wasn't a very good communicator. He gave us His Word. It is His Word. It is our authority for truth. But He wasn't very clear. That is really a terrible charge to bring against God when you think about it. Um, the denial of the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, I think, is a very sad excuse put forth by those who, for one reason or another, do not want to submit to what God has clearly revealed in His Word. So how does a pastor know if he is handling the Word of Truth rightly or correctly? How does a congregation know if their pastor is handling the Word of Truth rightly? Well, it is by comparing what is being taught with the doctrines clearly set forth in Holy Scripture. That is what the congregation must constantly do. Let us compare what is being taught with the doctrines clearly set forth in Holy Scripture. And by the way, the creeds and confessions of the church are very helpful in this. For they do provide a summary of the essential doctrines of Holy Scripture as understood by the church throughout its history. The creeds and confessions of the church are in no way authoritative... But they do summarize the teaching of Holy Scripture, and so they are of great use to the church of God and ought not to be neglected by her. Secondly, a pastor in congregations may know that the word of truth is being handled correctly. If it is being interpreted according to the method of interpretation set forth by the psalmists, the Old Testament prophets, Christ and His apostles, and the prophets who ministered under the New Covenant era, in the earliest days of the church. And I will not belabor this point this morning because I did say more about it in the previous sermon that was preached last Sunday. But please remember that the scriptures present not only words and stories and various doctrines, but also a method of interpretation which is to be followed. In brief, we are to remember that when Jesus met with his disciples after his resurrection, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is Luke 24, 27. It's in this passage that we find our name, the name of our church, Emmaus, Reformed Baptist Church. Jesus met with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and this is what he did with them in that town and later with other disciples back in Jerusalem. He took them through Moses. He took them through all the prophets of the Old Testament and he interpreted the scriptures for them, demonstrating that they all found their fulfillment in him, in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we cannot ignore this. If we are to properly handle the scriptures, we are to interpret the scriptures ourselves according to the same pattern, the same, the same rule. Again, 
Our confession is correct. Chapter 1, paragraph 9. It says that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Do you hear that? How do we know how to interpret Scripture? Well, our confession says that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, there is only one meaning to it, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. We are to interpret Scripture with the help of Scripture. The point is this. False teachers do not often deny the Scriptures. They misuse them. They carry Bibles that are well-worn. They quote vast amounts of Scripture to support their doctrines, and they will certainly claim to be biblical. Notice that those who were teaching a different doctrine in Ephesus made confident assertions and they claim to be teachers of the law of Moses. That was their claim. We are experts in the law of Moses. And they made those assertions confidently. And there are many who teach different doctrines in the church today. They do so with their Bibles wide open. They do not deny the Scriptures. Again, they misuse them. And the end result is speculations rather than stewardship from God. That is by faith. That is 1 Timothy 1. Verse 4. And as I think about the misuse of Scripture in our day, leading to speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith, I cannot help but think of the way that the dispensational premillennialists handle the books of prophecy in the Old Testament and the New. I give this one example, and it is the first example that comes to my mind. When considering those precious books, they do not employ sound methods of interpretation. They do not allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Instead, they wrench those prophecies from their historical and biblical contexts. They fail to identify Christ and His kingdom as the fulfillment of them. And the end result is certainly speculation. Endless and empty speculations concerning the daily news and the time of the end. I wonder how many of their predictions regarding the mark of the beast... Wars and rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations, earthquakes, famines, and blood moons need to go unfulfilled before those who have devoted themselves to their teaching come to their senses and call it for what it is. It is a misuse of Scripture leading to idle and empty speculations rather than stewardship, that is good order, from God, that is by faith. I don't live in that world anymore that dispensational premillennial world. And so I can only imagine what they are saying about COVID-19 and the 2020 election. But we need not to misuse Scripture. We ought not to do it. And we need not to speculate idly. We must devote ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified and risen. That is what we must proclaim. Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. That is what must be proclaimed. We must point people to Him and see to it that their hope is in the world to come. The new heavens and new earth that will be ushered in at the time that Christ returns. Dear brethren, we must see to it that true and sound doctrine is proclaimed within Christ's church. The scriptures must be interpreted according to their intent. The intent of the original author, the original human author, as much as we are able to find that intent. And even more importantly... The intent of the one who inspired these men to write as they did. What is God's intent in this particular scripture passage? 
We are to recognize that some, sometimes God revealed things through these men who were divinely inspired that even they did not fully comprehend at the moment. Concerning salvation in Christ Jesus, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 1 Peter 1.10 says. I wonder if you heard what was just said there by Peter, that certain things were revealed to the Old Covenant prophets and through them, but even they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. The meaning is this. These men were inspired by God. They proclaimed the Word of God to the people of God in their generation, but there were some things about what they proclaimed that even they themselves did not fully understand. We understand them more fully now. Why? Because of subsequent revelation. More scripture has been written. Christ has come. And we're able to see that He indeed was a fulfillment of the law, Psalms, as the pro- and the prophets, just as He has said. Having now addressed the more general observation that false teachers misuse the scriptures, let us now consider the more specific problem of false teachers misinterpreting the law of Moses. This was a problem in Ephesus. It was a very common problem in the early church, and it continues to be a common problem even today. And to be very transparent, I will admit, I can understand why it is a problem. I can sympathize with those who struggle to interpret the law of Moses correctly. This is a big and somewhat complex topic. How is the Christian to understand the relationship between the law of Moses... I'm here referring to the first five books of the Old Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we to understand the relationship between the two things? Stated differently, what does the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments along with all of the other laws recorded in Exodus through Deuteronomy, for example, given to Israel, what does the law of Moses have to do with the Christian religion? What does it have to do with the Christian religion? Stated yet another way, what is the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New? Or, what is the relationship between the covenants transacted with Abraham, Moses, and David and the New Covenant ratified in Christ's blood? I would imagine that most Christians have at some point found themselves asking questions like this while reading through passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Have you ever read through the book of Leviticus devotionally? You see all of those ceremonial laws that are listed there, and you're going, what, if anything, does this have to do with me as a follower of Jesus Christ in this new covenant era? You know, it's a very common question, and I will admit it's a complex issue to deal with. But again, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are not unclear. The scriptures are not unclear. And here in 1 Timothy, Paul is not concerned with members of Christ's church who are struggling to understand the law of Moses. But he is here concerned with those who are claiming to be teachers in Christ's church. These were teachers who were misinterpreting the law of Moses. And if a man cannot properly convey the relationship between law and gospel, or the progression from the Old Covenant to the New, or the organic development of the promises of God in the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants leading to their fulfillment in Christ and the New Covenant ratified in His blood, if a man cannot clearly articulate these things, then he ought not to teach in Christ's church. For these are not 
tangential issues, but they are central to a correct understanding of the scriptures and of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the law of Moses that was being mishandled in the church of Ephesus. And as I have said, this was a common problem within the early church, and it is a common problem even up to this present day. So we might ask, how has the law of Moses been mishandled throughout the history of the church into this present day? You're thinking, how long are we going to be here today if we're going to answer that question? Certainly, um, a thorough explanation of this question would require the writing of books or volumes of books. But let me try to answer that question very, very succinctly by presenting you with just a few terms. And I'm not claiming here that my answer is thorough, but I do think this will help us to think in the right direction. How have men, man, how have men mishandled the law of Moses throughout the history of the church into this present day? First of all, let us consider legalism in all of its very forms, various forms. Legalism is the belief that man is somehow made right before God through his keeping of the law. According to legalism, the law is the gospel. A person is justified, either in whole or in part, through obedience to the law or through good works. Legalism takes many forms, but they all share this in common. The law is viewed as a way to salvation. There were certainly legalists in the early church, and Paul often contended with them, saying things like this, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's a strong statement, isn't it? If you were going to seek to be justified by law-keeping, you have fallen away from grace. You are severed from Christ. These two things cannot go, and go together. Either you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or you are trying to earn it through law-keeping. This is legalism. Uh, those who believe that salvation can be lost through disobedience are really legalists. And there are some who believe that way in the church today. They suppose that one is saved by grace at the beginning, but must maintain their salvation by obedience to the law. And when all is said and done, this is not salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but salvation through law-keeping. And legalism in all of its various forms obliterates the gospel. This is not good news, but bad news if it is true. Secondly, let us consider antinomianism in all of its various forms. The antinomian teaches that for the Christian, there is no law. Only the law of love or only the law of Christ. And according to the antinomian, the law is incompatible with the gospel. I'm here referring to the law of Moses, the moral law that is summarized there. The law is incompatible with the gospel. Uh, they cannot go together at all. And this too is a mishandling of the law of Moses. The antinomian fails to see that love is in fact the summary and essence of God's moral law. True, the Christian is not under the law as a covenant of works, but God's moral law still applies to us. This moral law is written on the Christian's heart. She obeys it, not out of mere duty, but a renewed spirit. And again, our confession summarizes the biblical teaching on this point in 19.6 when it says, Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. 
in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and life, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unalloyed rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil. For the law encourages to the one and deterreth from the other. It is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. That is old language and it is a mouthful for sure, but this is a beautiful statement that, that shows us that the law, though we are not under the law as a covenant of works, it is still of great value to the Christian. It is still something that we are to look to. It helps in our sanctification for sure. For there we are able to look at the law and we see what our our sin actually deserves and it makes us fall ever more in love with Jesus the Christ who has taken our sins upon himself and has paid for them. It shows us how we ought to live in this world and with the Spirit's help we are able to progress in holiness and in our sanctification. It's of great use to the believer is the point. Antinomianism is a misinterpretation of the law of Moses. It was present in the early church. And Paul often contended with this teaching. This is why he says in 1 Timothy 1, 7, the law is good. That is what he says here. Quite basically, in, in the first verse that we are considering today, he just makes this general statement, the law is good. Why did he need to say that? I think because some may have misinterpreted or misrepresented his own teaching as if he were saying that the law is to be abolished completely and not considered at all. No, he says, the law... The law is good and we ought to consider it as such. And in Romans 7, 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. And a little bit later in the same passage, he says, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Thirdly, consider dispensationalism in its classic and extreme form. And it's teaching that for some, salvation was by the works of the law, and for others, salvation is through faith in Christ. I'm sure you've been exposed to this teaching in this present age. Uh, There are some who still have this view, that under the old covenant, people were saved in one way, but in the new covenant, people are saved in another way. Dispensationalism is a modern teaching but forms of it were present even in the early church as men and women struggled to correctly interpret the law. But this idea that there are two ways of salvation, one for the Jews perhaps and one for the Gentiles, is completely incompatible with the clear teaching of Scripture. Friends, people were saved by grace through faith even in the days of Abraham and Moses. Please recognize that. People were saved only by the grace of God and only through faith, even in the days of Abraham and Moses and even prior to them. They were to believe upon the Messiah who had not yet come as He was held out before them in promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. And this is why Paul said, even in his day, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? 
Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom the Lord counts righteousness apart from the law. Here David is quoted, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is Romans 4, 1 through 8. What is, what is Paul's point? He is speaking against this tendency for some to assume that either presently or at some point in the past, salvation was attained through obedience to the law. He's saying it wasn't that day, that way in the days of Abraham. He believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Nor was it that way in the days of David. David himself rejoiced over the fact that his lawless deeds were forgiven, that they were covered. The Lord did not count his sins against him. David was saved by grace alone and through faith alone also. And so dispensationalism in its various forms, and there are many forms of it, misinterprets the law of Moses. Lastly, consider Messianic Judaism. And truthfully, I did struggle to find an ism to match the other isms that I've presented you with um, in the previous three points. And so I'm not sure that this is the best term, but I think you will see what I mean by this. What I have in mind here are those who teach that Christians ought to retain practices that are unique to the old covenant in this new covenant era. Are you tracking with me? And there are some who teach that to this very day, that in Christ and under the new covenant, we ought to still retain some of the practices that were truly unique or peculiar to the people of God living under the Old Covenant. That is, to Old Covenant Israel living under the law of Moses. This was a very common problem within the early church, and understandably so. One of the most pressing questions for the apostles was, what should we require of these Gentile converts? Many of the Jews rejected the gospel, but many Gentiles received Christ and were being brought into the church to the great pleasure and surprise of the apostles. But there was a problem that they had to constantly contend with. What should we require of these Gentile converts? For example, must they be circumcised as the male Jews under the Old Covenant were required to be circumcised? Does that commandment that was imposed upon the descendants of Abraham under the Old Covenant, does that commandment still stand under this new covenant? And what was the answer? No. In fact, that sign, the sign of circumcision, was unique, was peculiar to the old covenant. It was a sign of the old covenant has passed away. So we should not demand it of Gentile converts. What about our food? What should these Gentile converts be permitted to eat? Is there any food that is off limits for them as it was for the people of God under the old covenant? Should they be allowed to eat pork or shellfish? Uh, should they be allowed to eat things that were considered uh, unclean under the old covenant? They struggled with these issues and they came to firm conclusions that there were some things under the old covenant that were unique and peculiar to the old covenant and to the people of God living in that age. And that is why 
Paul said things like this. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That is Galatians 6.15. He's saying circumcision doesn't matter at all in this new covenant age. What matters is that you have been born again, circumcised, not according to the flesh, but in the heart. And if you are sitting here wondering, but why? Why the change? We'll have to talk about that at another time. And to those who were tempted to think that circumcision was required for salvation, Paul said, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, lest any of the men are getting nervous here in the room, thinking, but what does that mean for me? Uh, understand the context was this. These were individuals who were saying, I must be circumcised because I will be saved through it. That is what the apostle is here condemning. He's saying, no. Circumcision, whether it is applied or not, does not matter under this new covenant era. But if you are hoping to be right before God through law-keeping, that is a terrible mistake. You are, you are a legalist in that moment. You are seeking salvation through works. That is a terrible mistake. No, some of these things that were unique under the Old Covenant and peculiar to the Jewish people, some of these things that were imposed upon them for a time have passed away because they have been fulfilled in Christ. And so there is a freedom in Christ that those Old Covenant saints did not enjoy. Let us briefly consider what Paul says about the law here in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. I say briefly because really it is quite simple. In verse 8 he says, Now we know that the law is good. The words now we know I think indicate that this is common knowledge amongst the apostles and their co-workers. They all viewed the law as being good. And the statement, the law is good, is massively important. When Christians think of the law, we are to think of something that is good for us. Something that is beneficial, not something that has been discarded, something that is to be put away. We are not antinomians. But then Paul immediately qualifies his statement with the phrase, if one uses it lawfully. Stated in a different way, the law is bad if one uses it inappropriately. The inappropriate use of the law is bad for Christians, but the law, if it is used appropriately, is very good for Christians. When you read Paul's writings... Sometimes he does sound as if he is against the law. Sometimes he comes across in that way. But we must see clearly, if we take all that he has said into consideration, he is not against the law. What is he against? He's against the improper use of the law. And the words understanding this indicate that Paul is about to say something crucial about the lawful use of the law. And what does he say? Most fundamentally, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. This is the first and most basic thing that we must understand. As we consider the law, we must understand that it is not laid down for the just, but for people who are in sin or people who are struggling with sin. The law was given through Moses to sinners. And so here is where we must begin with the law. We must recognize that the law, now that we have fallen into sin, is not given to men who are just, but to men who are lawless and disobedient. Our view of the law must be shaped by this most fundamental observation. What is the law for? What is the law for? 
Well, it is to be used to address moral questions. It is certainly not to be used for speculations about genealogies. The law is to be used to deal with men struggling in their sin. It seems to me that Paul has the whole law of Moses or the first five books of the Bible in view when he speaks of the law. After all, these false teachers were devoted to myths, presumably concerning the patriarchs, and genealogies, presumably presumably the genealogies found in the first five books of Moses. But Paul does hone in upon the Ten Commandments in particular. And I want you to finish strong with me here, brothers and sisters, as we are getting to the end of this sermon. But finish strong and pay careful attention to this. Look at the sins that Paul lists here in this passage. And as you look at them closely, you will see that they are really particular violations of the Ten Commandments. Uh, This is most obvious when you read the words, those who strike their fathers and mothers. This corresponds to the fifth of the Ten Commandments. He mentions murderers who violate the sixth commandment. He speaks of those who are sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. These violate the seventh commandment. He speaks of enslavers or man-thieves who violate, in, in a most extreme way, the eighth commandment. He speaks of liars and perjurers who violate the ninth commandment. And then Paul does not mention the tenth commandment, covetousness, but he gives way to this little summary phrase saying instead, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It is not that Paul approves of covetousness, but he simply transitions out of this uh, reference to the Ten Commandments by making this summary statement and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So it is rather easy to see the second table of the law in Paul's list of sins. But the first table of the law is also present behind what Paul says in verse 9. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And he says next, for the ungodly. The ungodly are those who are godless and impious. The first commandment is... Have no other gods before me. Secondly, Paul mentions sinners. Often this Greek word is used to refer to sinners in general, but sometimes it is used more specifically to refer to those who are irreligious and idolatrous. And I think that is what Paul has in mind here, given the pattern that we see in his list. The second commandment forbids idolatry. Thirdly, Paul mentions the unholy. Again, the word may be used generically, but it can also have a more specific reference to those who are impious. Christians are called to hallow God's name or regard it as holy, and those who profane God's name are unholy. The third commandment forbids taking the name of the Lord in vain. And then lastly, Paul mentions the profane. The fourth commandment is to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And those who violate this commandment profane the Lord's day. This is consistent with the usage also of this word. And so notice lastly that the law of Moses in general, and I think the Ten Commandments in particular, are said to be in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which Paul had been entrusted. That is how he concludes this uh, section here. And so the law and the gospel comply. They fit together, don't they? They are not opposed to one another. The law is not the gospel. This we say against the legalist. No one can be saved through the keeping of the law now that we are in sin. But the law is in accordance with the gospel. And this we say against the antinomian. 
The two belong together, law and gospel. In fact, they work together. Law and gospel work together. In brief, the law convicts of sin, but the gospel holds forth Christ as the solution. They work together. Or to use the language of our confession in 19.7, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. I love that phrase. The law and the gospel are not opposed to one another, but they sweetly comply. They sweetly comply. They work together. If we understand the law of God correctly, and if we understand the gospel correctly, we see that the two sweetly comply. To put it very simply, the law is not for speculation, brothers and sisters, but it is to be used to deal with issues of morality. And the law is not for the righteous. It is not for... Um, it, 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 for no one is righteous. No, not one. The scriptures are clear. But it addresses sinners in their sin. And what does the law do for us? Well, for those not in Christ, it shows them their sin and their need for a Savior. The law sweetly complies with the gospel and that the law shows men their need for the gospel. But it is useful also for believers who continue to struggle with sin. And we all do continue to struggle with sin. The law helps us to see the corruptions that remain. It reminds us of our need for a Savior, moving us to cling ever more closely to Him. It is used by the Spirit to bring us to repentance. And it does further teach us how we are to live in this world in a way that is pleasing to our God. Brothers and sisters, the law is good, provided that we use it lawfully. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your law. We thank you for the way that it has been used to drive us to Christ as Savior. And we thank you for your law even now. May we approach it with the right spirit, with the right mind. Father, we do ask that you would use the law to drive out corruptions that remain within us. And we thank you that at the beginning of the Christian life, the moment we believed, and even before that, you have regenerated us. This law is written on our hearts. So Lord, as we live in this world, help us to live in obedience to this law, not because of mere obligation, but out of sincere love for you and out of sincere love for our fellow man. Father, as we do this, we pray that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.